Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Surgery Watch podcast. I guess today was Anne Osdway, CEO of Moon Surgical. If you know about Moon Surgical, you'll know that they're on a meteoric rise right now. In 2023 alone, they've got a 510k clearance, CE mark, done first in human trials, had two lots of investment and are on equally as fast growth for the, the next few years. In today's episode, you get a real deep dive into their, their stories so far, but also why they've made certain decisions and design decisions, but some more stories are thrown in there as well. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, Anne, and welcome to the Surgibots podcast. Hi, Henry. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. And how about yourself? I'm great, thanks. Great, good stuff. So to kick off with, can you tell us who you are and what it is that you do? Yes. Um, so my name is Anna Zdoua. I'm the CEO of Mood Surgical, which is a surgical robotics company um, focused on soft tissue surgery. Okay, brilliant stuff. So talk me through your career and how it led to you becoming the CEO of Moon Surgical. Of course. Um, so I was trained as a biomedical engineer. Um, I was trained both um, in France at the school called École Polytechnique, um, as well as in the U.S. at Johns Hopkins University, um, and subsequently moved back to France, um, where um, at the time I wanted to work in a startup um, doing medical imaging specifically. Um, I had a you know keen interest uh, in medical imaging. I had as a, as a teenager and as a child always wanted to be a physician, um, and um, I thought you know working in a in a med tech startup would basically you know, get me in touch with clinicians on a very regular basis um, in, in the product development process and, and, you know, make it really interesting. And so I moved back to Paris. Um, at the time, there were not a lot of, um, you know, medtech startup companies. Uh, I think it's, you know, fair to say that the field has changed uh, significantly in the past 20 years. Um, and I joined a company called Monarchia Technologies, um, where I was initially in charge of, you um, Pretty much, you know, anything that was not R&D. Uh, and so we call this application specialist. And it, it was a lot of, um, you know, first, uh, you know, the first um, clinical use of the system, the first demo, the first trade show, um, the first um, brochure. I mean, there were a lot of things that we needed to implement, uh, which was great exposure for me. I got, uh, you know, basically in touch with all the different stakeholders and um, learned a ton during a few years. Um, after which uh, we realized that we needed to have a very focused effort um, on clinical evidence generation. Uh, you know, at Monarchia, we were developing a technology that needed to secure a reimbursement code. Um, and to get there, we needed um, randomized control trials and things that would be a lot more structured in terms of evidence generation. Um, so I, I did additional training on clinical trial methodology, biostatistics, and then led a clinical affairs team for a few years. And after that, um, you know, took over marketing, added marketing um, to, to my responsibilities. Um, that was the time at which we took the company public. Um, so it was really interesting for me to see also the different financing rounds and the evolution of the company, um, you know, throughout the years. Um, and then at the end of my tenure at Monarchia Technologies, I did some business development as well. So looking for, you know, partnerships and opportunities for developing the product in just, you know, different clinical indications and, and settings. Um, and that, that was interesting as well. I had never done, you know, kind of a you know, B2B, um, you know, um, dialogue and exploration. And, and so I spent 10 years at Monarchia Technologies and you know, saw a lot of things um, and then was eager to work on something that would um, bring me back to the early stages uh, of medtech development, um, but also expose me to maybe a lot more different projects. Um, I wanted basically to learn and, um, you know, be aware about more disease areas, more technologies. Um, and uh, I was also eager to go into um, therapeutic um, medical devices. You know, Monarchia had a diagnostic platform and I wanted to see something that was about treating um, patients directly. Um, and so at that point, um, I had a few discussions with, with people in the industry and um, was pointed towards a, an entity called MD Start. Uh, which is Sophie Nova's um, MedTech um, Acceleration Fund and Incubator. 
Um, and MD Start had been around for a few years. Um, they needed to raise uh, more money. They needed someone to help manage it. And, and so I, I joined MD Start at that point um, and raised two funds with MD Start. I was the founding CEO of four companies out of the MD Start portfolio. And the last one of those companies is Moon Surgical. Okay, fantastic. So to go back to the early stage of what you're talking about, what was it about the uh, the medical imaging side that was so attractive to you in the early stages of your career? That's a great question. Um, I, I felt it was a field where, um, you know, there was a lot of um, potential for technology evolution, right? I mean, people had been doing x-rays and things for, you know, years, uh, but the, the field was ripe for disruption with new stuff. Um, and, you know, what we did at Monarchia was interesting. We were basically developing a way to get microscopic imaging during a procedure, whether it's endoscopic or surgical, um, which in a way was way ahead of its time because it creates a lot of um, questions around, okay, how do you read those images in real time? Who has the skill set to read those images? And, you know, fast forward, you know, 10, 15 years with artificial intelligence and machine learning, you're able to solve this que these questions a lot easier. But um, uh, but at the time, it, it was, um, you know, new and unknown. And um, yeah, so I, I just felt that, you know, medical imaging offered a lot of potential for um, innovation and, and disruption. Great. So is that a similar story with the surgical robotics side now? Do you think we're at a similar point where um, the field is really ripe for that big change and big disruption? That, that's a great question uh, because, you know, I mean, surgical robotics is, I, I, I would say, has been ready for um, different approaches um, for many years, right? Uh, I think, you know, there there's probably not a lot of fields out there where you have this one, you know, thousand pound gorilla player and, and not, you know, pretty much nothing else. Uh, and, and what's been mind boggling to me is that, you know, people have been essentially chasing da Vinci, right? I mean, they have been trying to um, develop, um, you know, similar platforms in a way. I mean, each of them has their own nuance and subtleties and, you know, different ways of doing this or that. But it's essentially the same um, philosophy and approach, right? It's, you know, you're going to give control to the surgeon by removing them from the um, the sterile field. Uh, and it's it's about... A lot of sophistication and and you know complex procedures. It's about addressing um, you know complex procedures, and um, you know deploying and adopting technologies in in, in settings that are uh, you know prepared for that. Right? Not everyone is is able to to use a Da Vinci system in a routine um, fashion. Um, and, you know, it's true that when I saw the, the technology behind Moon Surgical initially, before we did the tech transfer, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know if I recognized that this was something different, but I mean, it, it, it was very obvious, right? A co-manipulation robot in soft tissue um, didn't exist. Um, it, it was not a completely foreign concept or new concept because the truth is it exists and it has existed for years in orthopedics uh, for instance um, but uh, but it was very unique and differentiated versus you know what people had been developing in soft tissue surgery so so that was intriguing um, and and for me it had the potential to really become you know a platform um, rather than um, you know, being positioned to at least initially serve, you know, one type of indication and procedures. It's, it's interesting when, when we started, um, you know, diligencing the opportunity and, you know, trying to evaluate um, the potential. I, I did an, a lot of interviews with very experienced people in the field and, you know, VCs and operators. And, you know, some of them told me, well, you know, you're going to have to pick one clinical procedure and, you know, develop a robot that's perfect for it because that's the way it works in surgical robotics. You know, initially you have to focus uh, and um, specify your device uh, to meet the needs and the requirements of this one clinical indication and, and procedure. And I was like, really? You know, I mean, it's, it's, it sounded interesting, but what we had in front of us was a technology and a platform 
that could address very systematic issues um, and needs of laparoscopy. You know, every single laparoscopy procedure is going to require some sort of scope management uh, and then some sort of exposure to the tissues of interest and access to the tissues of interest, right? And, and that's going to be the case no matter what minimally invasive surgery procedure you do. It's actually even beyond laparoscopy, right? It's the same case in arthroscopy, for instance, and, and others. Um, and, and I thought we had a technology that could really be developed at, and positioned as something that would help and assist any surgery and any OR with any, any surgeon, um, which, which was very different, again, yeah, than, than what's on the market right now. Great stuff, great stuff. So let, let's put it in really simple terms for anyone who's listening to the podcast and hasn't seen the Maestro platform before. So talk me through the technology and talk me through how it works and some of the main main features of, of Maestro. Yep. So the Maestro system is a two-arm system. Um, it sits um, typically across the bed from the surgeon, you know, surgeon on one side of the patient, the Maestro on the other side. Um, and um, the default usage of the system is that one arm is going to hold the scope, uh, so the camera, um, that's inserted um, into the abdomen um, and used to visualize um, the organs throughout the procedure. And then the second arm is going to hold a retractor, so just a grasper, uh, in order to um, essentially expose um, the organs um, where the surgeon should be you know, working, the organs of interest. Um, and enable access. Um, and so these two functions, you know, managing the scope and managing exposure and access are typically um, handled by a surgical assistant uh, who would basically, you know, with their two arms, you know, hold and maneuver the scope and the grasper um, throughout the procedure. And what we're doing is, is we're providing control for these functions um, to the surgeon, right? The surgeon is able to grasp the scope, move it without any resistance from our robots. You know, the arms are completely unlocked. They're completely mechanically transparent and seamless. And the surgeon moves the scope. Uh, and then as soon as the surgeon lets go, the arm will lock in position and keep the instrument stable at that desired location. Um, so we are essentially um, helping the surgeon by providing two extra arms to manage two extra instruments in a way that is extremely well integrated in the workflow. You know, they don't have to press a button or a clutch or a pedal or anything. They just grab the instrument, move it, let it go, and the system understands um, what needs to be done. Great stuff. So. With all of that technology then, so we like to think about three main beneficiaries when we're talking about these new technologies that might be the patient, the surgeon, or the health system. So how does it benefit those three main groups? Yeah, so, you know, I'll start with the surgeon, which is, you know, the, the main user of the system and, and maybe the, the, the most obvious beneficiary. So it provides control to the surgeon over um, two extra instruments, uh, which in, you know, a, a, a big chunk of laparoscopy procedures means that the surgeon is able to, to control and manage, um, you know, all the instruments used. We went for four trocar and four instrument procedures, um, you know, which would be the case for um, gallbladder removal, appendectomy, hernia repair, although hernia can even be done with three trocars and instruments. Um, you know, a number of, um, you know, bariatric procedures. Um, so there's a number of, um, you know, clinical cases where this means that the surgeon can essentially operate while being his or her own assistant without the need for another assistant in the room. Um, and um, and this um, is, is a benefit um, in ORs today because there's significant staff shortage, uh, as you know, uh, there's a number of uh, you know settings where um, the assistant is basically paid by the surgeon, is, is, is another surgeon that is recruited by the surgeon to assist. Um, so um, you know, providing a way um, for the surgeon to just you know control all that and and you know not have to worry about um, staffing that position and managing it is um, is desirable. Um, of course, the patient needs to benefit, um, and, and the way the patient benefits for us is, is really um, multiple different ways. Um, when surgeons have control over the scope and the retractor, 
it's a lot more fluid um, in the way they, they handle the instruments. Um, and what we're seeing in our clinical experience is that these procedures tend to be um, you know, faster and faster uh, to the point that where you know, they might become even shorter than they would be um, in traditional laparoscopy. Um, so reduced operative time, reduced anesthesia time, um, you know, uh, is, is of course something that is directly correlated with um, complications uh, and just giving more control to the surgeon, uh, better visualization um, and access to tissue is, is also, um, you know, uh, tied to complications. It's not something that you can see over tens or hundreds of procedures, but it's something that we will be documenting uh, post-market um, and, and demonstrating over a greater number of procedures. Um, there are other, you know, tech, I mean, benefits for patients that come from really the technology itself. Um, we have a technology that has a number of um, passive joints. And, and basically what this does is it minimizes the forces at the trocar um, insertion point, right? Uh, which is very, very different from what you would have in a Da Vinci system, right? Where you, you essentially cannot control the force that is applied on, on the true car. Um, and so uh, we think that, you know, same thing here over time and a greater number of procedures, this should translate in, you know, reduced um, post-operative hernia, for instance, uh, because there's really minimal force that is applied um, at, the, at the insertion site. Um, so that's the patient side. And then in terms of the third stakeholder, well, prob probably just providers, right? Making sure that they can, you know, keep their ORs open uh, and efficient, uh, even in an environment where staff is scarce, um, is, is something that we're hearing is also, um, you know, very positive uh, in, in the current environment. Great stuff. So at that surgeon group then, I'm quite interested to see, so... Are you getting better feedback from surgeons who are transitioning just from traditional laparoscopy or are there people going from robotics back to the Maestro platform who are also finding it useful or who's going to be the main, yeah, the, the customer base? Who's, who's going to be the guys that really get into this? Yeah, that, that's a fantastic question. We, we currently spend a lot of time, uh, you know, thinking about this and how we're going to do, um, you know, our targeting I think the reality is we're not seeing a lot of difference in the feedback we're getting from different surgeon groups. You have people who are, um, you know, super experienced Da Vinci users, um, and um, they find themselves in places where um, Da Vinci time allocation is um, is a struggle, right? And we hear that from administrators as well. Uh, you know, satisfying all your surgeons, uh, you know, when you have one or two Da Vinci systems is not easy. Uh, making sure that you can, you know, distribute uh, our time uh, on Da Vinci uh, in a fair way to all surgeons is, um, is a challenge. And, um, you know, there is a great number of procedures that are done on a Da Vinci system today that can be done with the Maestro system. Of course, not the procedures which require, um, you know, um, sophisticated suturing, uh, not things that will require, you know, being in a very narrow and deep environment and, you know, doing fine manipulations, uh, because this is really where Da Vinci excels. Uh, but, you know, if you're doing gallbladder removals, hernias, bariatric, uh, even colectomies, um, appendectomies, reflux surgery, I mean, all these can be done uh, with the Maestro system today. So it is a solution for providers to essentially offload, you know, the Da Vinci um, program and, and tell their surgeons and patients, hey, we're going to be doing surgical robotics in every single OR, um, you know, at our facility. Uh, it's just the right robot for the right indication. Um, and, you know, we, we think that this um, is, is something very compelling. Um, so that would be for surgeons who um, are already using Da Vinci. Uh, but similarly, you know, for, for someone who doesn't use robotics, um, you know, switching to Maestro is going to be a lot easier than switching to other platforms because you're keeping the exact same surgical instrumentation. We're not providing instrumentation ourselves. Uh, so you can use whatever you would be using for that procedure um, traditionally. Um, as long as it has a five or a 10 millimeter shaft, uh, you know, we're compatible with it. 
um, which is the vast majority of laparoscopy instruments. Um, and it's going to be the same instrumentation, it's going to be the same surgical techniques, same port placement, same surgical steps, um, and minimal you know, changes to the workflow in the OR. So, of course, you don't have your surgical assistant anymore across you know, the, the bed, uh, but you know, the surgeon is still at the center, and basically the, the communication and workflow with you know, everything else in the OR is, is unchanged. Uh, and so the bar to adopt and get familiar and trained on a maestro system is, is significantly reduced versus what it would be for other robotic systems. Um, and so we think that's a way to onboard, you know, a lot more surgeons um, to surgical robotics. Okay, fantastic. So you mentioned an interesting thing there, training. It's a subject we've had on the podcast a couple of episodes ago with Fundamental VR. So what is the training pathway for surgeons? What's the kind of training plan you have developed? Yeah, um, and it's interesting because we've had some discussions with Fundamental VR and they, they have a great technology. Um, so, you know, again, same instrumentation, same surgical techniques, same workflow. Uh, so we believe that training um, can be, um, you know, delivered in, in a way that is going to be a lot less disruptive than, um, you know, with other platforms. Um, and so what this means is, you know, we, we think training can be done on site. You know, you don't have to take two surgeons and two nurses, you know, off site for a couple of days or more. Uh, so we think training can be done on site. Um, and it's probably, you know, not much longer than, a, you know, an hour, an hour and a half session. Uh, and then, you know, just sticking around for the first uh, couple of cases. Um, and, and that should do it. Uh, you know, you, you really don't have any um, interaction with the robot during the procedure. The only thing the surgeon is interacting with are the surgical instruments, you know, that are held by the robot. And those are his or her regular instruments that he or she is manipulating, right? Um, so, so it, it really makes the usage, um, you know, simple. Um, what what we need to train people on is, of course, how to turn on the system, how to set it up, um, which, you know, we have greatly simplified and automated, uh, and how to manage really the graphical interface, you know, picking your procedure, uh, saying which surgeon you are, and, you know, uploading or, sorry, um, yeah, implementing all your default, uh, you know, settings and positions and everything. But... Um, it's really what's happening in the periphery of the procedure. During the procedure, it should be very straightforward. Um, but, but you know, I think your question is probably a broader question, which is, uh, you know, beyond training, how do you convey, uh, you know, your technology and the benefits of your technology to people, even in the sales process? Um, because that, you know, that is um, a significant challenge in our field and, and also one of the reasons why fundamental VR, um, you know, and, and similar technologies are needed. It's not just about training. It's also, you know, how do you demo it? You know, and it, it makes perfect sense that surgeons, you know, like to touch things. Uh, they like to understand the footprint um, in their OR because, you know, space is limited they like to understand how they interact with these things. Um, and so that's where I think we, we need to be a bit creative to you know, develop a way to showcase our technology that will be scalable. Yeah, precisely, precisely. I think it feeds in to another question because I know that you guys, when we had a chat before this, you're developing not just the robot, but the platform and the ecosystem around it. So can you talk to some of the things that you're doing to build out that ecosystem and some of the interesting projects that come along with that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, our effort is really around developing something that that used, um, you know, as, as we said before, for any case by any surgeon in any, you know, OR or hospital. And so it means that it has to be completely... Um, idiot proof um, in, in the sense that, you know, you, you need to be able to use the system, um, you know, even if, um, you know, the staff is not the same, uh, you know, as you know, from one day to the next. And there's significant, uh, you know, uh, uh, changes in, in the staff um, just over a matter of days when you're, you know, in a hospital or in an ASC. Um, a lot of these, um, you know, uh, providers um, have contractors now coming in. 
uh, to fill in for missing positions. So we, we, you know, if people are going to start relying on our system to the point that they don't staff the human assistant in a room, uh, this thing needs to be um, reliable and it needs to be turned on all the time, even if, you know, the nurses in the room were not there, there the day you know, we trained anyone, right? It has to be extremely easy to onboard new people uh, on the system and, and, and get them trained. Um, so what this means is we, we need to facilitate a lot of things that are um, around the usage of the system and that don't necessarily happen during the procedure. Because during the procedure, it's always going to be a surgeon and that surgeon is always going to be trained most likely. And, um, and again, that surgeon is going to be doing mostly, you know, well-known things because we're not changing their practice. Um, so one of the aspects that we have worked on, uh, you know, facilitating is the setup of the system. Um, so basically automating the setup of the system based on um, which surgeon is going to be using the system, um, which clinical indication, which procedure it's for, uh, and um, even which room it's in. Uh, and being able to um, position the system in, in basically a default um, setup that will be appropriate for that particular surgeon, that particular procedure, in that particular room. And that is something that can even, you know, evolve over time to um, include things such as, you know, the bed position, the patient um, form factor when the abdomen is insufflated, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, basically automating the setup of the system uh, and making sure it constantly learns from the adjustments that the surgeon might make uh, is something that is going to tremendously help um, adoption because the staff is not going to have to worry about setting up the system, right? What 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 is called, um, you know, the docking for a Da Vinci system is a huge pain point. Um, and so we, we don't, we don't have to basically impose that on, on the staff. Um, so that's one of the examples. Um, another example would be, um, you know, a surgeon profiles, uh, that can be, um, carried from one system to the next, right? Surgeon profiles in the cloud. Uh, so basically solving for, um, this, um, you know, other pain points that we hear about, which is. Um, surgeon preference cards, right? I mean, this thing is, you know, it's 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 completely silly, but uh, it's something that hospitals have a lot of trouble solving. Each surgeon has their own preference as to how they do things, right? Um, and uh, and that also applies to using a surgical robot, right? Um, they like positions, um, specific positions when they do certain things. They like um, that, you know, the arm is going to lock in position after a certain duration, uh, you know, more or less, um, you know, um, yeah, longer or, or shorter. Um, they, um, they have, um, yeah, their, their own way at um, maneuvering a scope, zooming in, zooming out, etc. And so these are things we, we can learn and, you know, implement in, in those surgeon profiles. Um, and, and surgeons typically will operate in multiple ORs throughout the week, right? Sometimes they, they work at multiple ambulatory surgery centers, but if they don't, you know, they might switch from one room to the next. And so being able to just, you know, retrie retrieve this profile from the cloud and make sure that the, each system they're going to use um, remembers, uh, you know, what their preferences are um, and delivers them um, is also part of this ecosystem. Um, what else? I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's also things such as providing feedback, right? Uh, you know, Da Vinci surgeons love their app, right? Because they can see on that app, you know, how many procedures they've done, how they compare with their peers, um, you know, what was the duration of their cases and et cetera. And so, this is something that, uh, you know, we, we also uh, need to implement and will be implementing, right? Um, surgeons, uh, you know, have been um, crafted through peer-to-peer -peer training, right? I mean, that's kind of the fundamental way you train people in surgery is peer-to-peer -peer training. Uh, and so this, this notion that you will have a community of, of users and that you will be able to provide feedback on one's specific usage um, 
is something that I think will be appealing because, uh, you know, then they can, you know, start interacting and, and speaking about your system and their adoption and their usage um, to other surgeons essentially on your behalf, right? Um, so that's, you know, part of the, the ecosystem. There's many more, you know, aspects um, to it, but um, essentially it's about creating a, a platform and almost an operating system that um, enables, you know, continuous improvement in the UR and that closes the loop, right? You're able to sense things, you're able to process them, to deliver them, and then to correct and improve things through um, the robot, which is essentially the end effector uh, of the loop. Fantastic. Fantastic. So, yeah, I love that mission. I think the community building side of things is is such a a unique way to collectively get better and improve surgery. So I absolutely love that. So moving more onto the commercial side of the business now. So it's coming to market on a subscription service rather than a CapEx or other financial models. So what, what benefits does that bring and why are we going down the subscription route? Yeah, so traditionally surgical robots have been sold as CapEx. Um, and I think a result of that, what people have experienced are, um, of course, relatively long sales cycle, right? We're talking here more. Um, also, um, a, a, an inherent limitation as to how many systems you deploy at once, right? I mean, typically surgical robots have been sold, you know, on a one one by one, you know, basis. I mean, you typically equip one room and then after a few years, if people are happy, you might sell a second system. Um, but it's very much a, a unit sale um, to date. Uh, and so, you know, in, in the way we think about our system, we, we position it as, uh, you know, basically a, a platform that is going to turn the, the, the surgeon is in his or her own assistant and and really augments the surgeon uh, for any procedure. There's no real reason why it would be in one room and not in the next, right? You're not going to reserve cases to be done specifically on Maestro. It doesn't really make sense. I mean, which cases would you reserve um, for Maestro versus not? Um, and so we thought that you know we're we're really creating something that is meant to be accessible, adaptable. Uh, and, and, you know, easy to use. And so if we do that, um, you know, we want to be um, really an essential tool of NUR, right? You have a bed, you have a lab tower, you have an anesthesiology tower, and you have a maestro system. And without it, uh, well, the surgeon can't operate because, you know, they might not be, they might not have an assistant around or they, or just, you know, that's the, the way they've been used to operating. Uh, and so, you know, if, if you want to deploy multiple systems at once and, and provide, um, you know, service around it, essentially hardware as a service, uh, you know, we, we thought that coming in with a subscription model, which would be um, a relatively low bar to get into, right, because your upfront cost is limited, but also very predictable uh, for providers uh, would be the best way. You know, if, if you do a pay-per-click, which is another model, uh, then things can go out of control if if your adoption is um, very successful, right? You don't know. I mean, there's no there's no upper boundary. Um, so uh, we thought that the subscription model, that is, of course, you know, the monthly subscription price is tied to volume uh, tiers, uh, would be a way for providers to gain easy access to the t technology but also to know between which upper and lower limit, uh, you know, their monthly, um, you know, subscription would fall and to have good predictability and also to simplify uh, procurement because everything is folded into that monthly subscription, you know, whether it's service or disposables, everything is covered uh, and, and you don't have to worry about anything else. So it's about the of the technology, right? Access accessibility also means um, from a business model standpoint. Okay, brilliant stuff. And that's what I was just about to say is about that accessibility piece. Um, so yeah, it's a lower barrier to entry, which I think is is really important because obviously I've, I work in the space on a day-to-day -day basis. I know sales guys who get robots to market. 
Um, and I know how long these sales cycles are. So the subscription model, it's, it's absolutely great. But on the other hand, like as a business, um, as Moon Surgical, that's got to be incredibly costly if a, uh, a hospital uh, says, look, we want to get five, five maestro systems in there. So how do you manage that balance of being able to offer it on a subscription service, but also getting revenue back quickly to be able to offer it to more people? Yeah, that's a brilliant question, right? Um, well, you know, I think, um, you know, first, I mean, my, my first comment would be that I'm, I'm pretty sure that if established players on the market could switch to a subscription system today, they would, right? Uh, because it's probably, you know, the, the, the business model that allows for the broadest adoption. Um, but, you know, once you're in business and you've started posting revenue forecasts and stuff, it's extremely difficult to do that because it means that you're going to go through a few years of bad earnings, right? Uh, and so nobody's willing to do that. So to answer your question, I think it came from setting the expectations um, really from the get-go with our investors um, and our board that this is the model we wanted to go after. It doesn't have to be exclusive, by the way. I mean, if people have cash and they want to purchase a system up front... <laughs> You're not going to say no. <laughs> but um, but this, the, let's say that this would be our preferred business model or our default business model. And um, yeah, we, we communicated on this um, with you know potential investors um, very early on. It, it is part of the reasons why some of our investors joined us because they, they believed that this would enable really the you know mass market um, usage and, and adoption that, that, that we that we pitch. Um, so, you know, of course it, it has an impact on, uh, your revenue curve. Um, it has an impact on your working capital, uh, for sure. Uh, cause you need to be able to manufacture these systems without recognizing all the revenue upfront. Um, but if you look at the long-term projections, um, you know, this is really, um, you know, the model that is, um, you know, going to be the most, um, successful. Um, so, you know. Just, um, yeah, it, explaining this uh, and getting support and buy-in on, on, you know, what we want to do uh, has, been, uh, has been instrumental. And we have a great support from, you know, all our investors. We, we think that, you know, working capital is something that can be funded, um, you know, covered creatively. It's not necessarily something that um, has to be equity. Uh, and so we are um, looking at the, the options. Brilliant stuff. Brilliant. Um, so yeah, one of my favorite things about the Moon story so far is how fast you've gone since emerging from stealth mode. It's so quick and so fast. So how have you managed to maintain that speed and how, how have you managed to go on such a quick trajectory to CE Mark, 510K, two funding rounds within a year? It all seems so so fast. So how have you managed to do that when, when others are struggling quite a lot? Yeah, um, well, two things. I would say first, we have an amazing team um, and you know a team of people who um, have done it uh, to some degree, uh, but also are very fresh in the way they think about it uh, and out of the box thinkers, right? Uh, it's not only about experience uh, and skill set, it's also about the mindset. Uh, and so making sure we have people who combine both a very deep knowledge um, and expertise in our field and have done it firsthand, but also um, I think have learned from others' um, errors uh, and are able to, um, you know, yeah, think from scratch uh, on, on a number of things. Um, is, um, is fundamental. Uh, and so this is why we've built our team, uh, you know, between Europe and the US from the get-go to really find these people and, and you know, get them on the team. Um, it's been incredibly powerful. Uh, and, um, you know, I think we, we have, a, we have a, an exceptional team uh, that is able to, to, to be very, very quick, very fast, make, you know, the right decisions. Uh, and, um, a lot of internal knowledge, uh, for sure. Um, and then a second thing I would say is, is focused, right? Uh, aligning the company around, um, you know, 
a few milestones, um, you know, that are significantly generating value. Uh, you know, there was this initial strategy of developing a first version of the system that we would use to get into the clinic and get through regulatory approvals. Um, that would not be a commercial system. It would not be a system we could scale with, um, but that was also given from, from the beginning. Um, was, I think, uh, you know, a strategy that, um, you know, people might have challenged. Uh, but for us, it was it was critical. It was critical because we wanted to find out what the FDA and CE pathway would look like. We didn't want to find that out with our commercial system. You know, when people are expecting you'll be on the market, we wanted to find that out very early. Um, and similarly, taking the system uh, into the clinic to get feedback from surgeons and iterate, uh, you know, not only based on preclinical data, um, was was really important. Um, and so I, I think, you know, with that strategy, we were able to basically get the information we needed to then execute on the commercial system very fast. Um, and then when it comes to the, you know, the funding, um, you know, we, um, I think, have been showing a very unique and differentiated approach. Uh, I mean, I, I remember discussing with some of our board members who are, you know, extremely experienced in the field. Um, and at some point they said, hey, you know, the field is shifting. People are going to be struggling raising money. The only people who are going to really, you know, find their way out of this mess in surgical robotics are those um, which have an extremely differentiated approach and are not too far from the market. Um, and again, you know, this required focus, right? I mean, we could throw a lot many more features in our system um, now, or we could go on the market and then evolve it later. Um, and, you know, we, we chose to, um, of course, uh, you know, do the, the former. Uh, and this is you know, probably part of what got us the, you know, the money we raised to, to date. Yeah. Great stuff. So going on to that finance, like today in today's funding market, it's not easy to raise finance. That's what I'm hearing yeah. from, I, I know a few CEOs who are trying to do it at the moment. They've got real good technology, solving some real world challenges. Um, and a lot of them are differentiated as well. But from what I hear, it's just really tough out there for them. So what, why do you think Moon has prevailed? Because I know you've had almost investors queuing up to invest in you. So um, how are you managing to get all of that interest and when, when others are struggling so much, do you think? Um, so I, I think first, uh, you know, it's, it's about, as I said, you know, uniqueness and differentiation in the approach. I mean, that there's no question around that. That's a very important fact. Um, the second piece is probably the fact that we have delivered on plan, uh, you know, to date uh, and built, you know, some degree of trust, uh, you know, from from investors. Um, you know, it's not that frequent that you, you know, are, you know, strictly on your plan uh, in, in our fields. Um, and then, you know, I, I think the third thing is, you know, if you think about it, uh, you know, Da Vinci is an immensely successful company. Um, it went on the market um, targeting one single indication, right, radical prostatectomy, which is about eighty to 90,000 procedures per year in the U.S., and, um, and it was designed really initially to be used in one type of setting, which is, you know, large teaching facilities, you know, when it went to market um, because of its complexity and all the training requirements. You know, we, we are going to the market with a platform that addresses, you know, if you take cholecystectomy alone or appendectomies or hernias, you know, we're talking for each one of these procedures around 800,000 cases per year in the U.S. So, you know, about 10 times what the radical prostatectomy market was. And with a system that is really designed uh, to do well in um, ambulatory settings, hospital outpatient departments, places that are about volume and where the bulk of surgeries are done. So there is really a difference in the order of magnitude um, that we could address um, by design. Um, and, and, and I think people recognize that. And, you know, of course, you know, building that revenue curve and, 
you know, developing the installed base is not something you do overnight. It's going to take you know, years, but the potential um, is so much greater. Um, and so this is something I think people have, um, you know, understood. Uh, and it's it's pretty unique in the field of surgical robotics, right? As as we said before, a number of robots are out there provide you know new and disruptive technology, but that technology is initially focused on you know a specialty indication or procedure. Yeah, understood, understood. So when when new investors come on board, then um, you obviously got a, a great mission, a great market to go after, but. Do you find the majority of your investors come through the networking that you do? Is it the events? Is it targeted outreach? What's worked best for you and where should people be focusing their efforts? It's been a bit of everything. Uh, you know, to be honest, we have investors in our cap table that I that I know and that I've known very well. Um, we have investors um, which um, I got introduced to by some of our team members. Uh, because they've invested in their previous companies and had, uh, you know, basically uh, an interest in surgical robotics uh, already from, you know, prior investments. Um, and then we have investors um, who are, you know, new to the field, um, who are completely new to me, um, and uh, who have a strategic reason why they, they want to have, a, you know, a play in, in life sciences and in surgical robotics um, specifically. Uh, such as NVIDIA, for instance, uh, which has been an incredible um, you know, supporter of ours uh, for, for the past uh, two or three years and recently became an investor. Uh, so I would say a bit of everything. I would say in the current uh, you know, um, fundraising environment, you, you really have to try everything, you know, from VCs to corporate VCs to family offices and you know, people you know, people you don't know. You just have to you know, be very creative. Yeah, good stuff, good stuff. So let's look to the, the future with, with where Moon Surgical is going. So what will we be seeing from you over the next 12 months? What are some of the big big goals you're working towards? So when we raised our funding round um, in the spring, um, you know, we, we really did it in an anticipated way um, to accelerate uh, on two, two fronts. Uh, you know, the first one is manufacturing, being able to scale. Um, making sure that we, um, you know, have the resources to produce commercial systems, to produce more and more of them, um, making sure that we um, internalize uh, some of the key assets um, around our technology, uh, making sure that we are in full control of our supply chain uh, and, you know, create some optionality there um, so that we don't get stuck um, when we scale. Um, so really the manufacturing and operations piece um, was, uh, was, you know, a big, a big part of it. Um, you know, it, it, we can also fall into that, um, you know, the basically developing the service um, team and operations, right? If you're going to go in the market um, with a system that people are going to rely on, again, you know, not staffing an assistant in a room. That system needs to work every single day. Otherwise, you know, you're going to piss people off, right? Uh, you know, if they turn on a morning and they, you know, turn on your system and it's not working and they have, you know, a few patients scheduled and no human assistant in a room, that's not going to go well, right? Uh, so we need to make sure that um, we have, you know, a team and an infrastructure that can support that. Um, and, and you know, uh, we, we are, you know, really at the beginning of that effort. Um, and then the second, the second reason um, to raise money and second you know, area where we wanted to accelerate was of course um, commercial. You know, getting ready for a commercial launch, um, making sure we can identify um, sites and surgeons uh, for our limited market release next year, having a few more systems in the field uh, for that limited market release, having you know, more people able to support them um, so that we can really benefit from this um, post-market learning phase um, prior to a larger launch. So these are really the two, uh, you know, the two main, um, you know, efforts uh, for the next, you know, 12, 18 months. Um, it, uh, it's, you know, it's about building a manufacturing, you know, infrastructure and team that can support scale and doing exactly the same on the commercial side. Great stuff. 
So we've talked about a lot of the positive things as part of Moon Surgical's journey so far, but along the way, has there been any big failures or has there been any times where you've had to change and pivot quite a large time? Have you got any stories for me from that perspective? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, nothing is easy, right? I mean, if you just think about the sheer, you know, workload behind what we're doing, you know, it's 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 pretty uh, pretty heavy and and pretty exhausting at times and you know uh, making i mean to be successful you you really have to be able to um you know fail fast when you try new things um you know identify the issues and uh and be hyper focused uh, for resolving the ones that are really critical and you know not resolving the other ones basically um so yeah we've we've had a few a few um you know aha moments um, I, I would say, um, you know, not on the regulatory front because we've done, a, you know, a, a number of pre-subs with the FDA and, you know, made sure we educated the FDA and had a lot of dialogue before we actually submitted anything. Um, but clearly, you know, on the clinical side, we had made some assumptions on the system and, you know, specifically on one part, which is how the surgical instruments were attached to the system. So what we call the couplers, the instrument couplers. Um, and and we went um, into our first inhuman study with you know with basically these couplers, um, and it became pretty quickly apparent that this would not fly right, uh, that it was extremely annoying to the surgeon and was like just not could not be used in in practice in in an OR. Uh, these you know these couplers were magnetic and. Um, they just attach to anything in the OR because, of course, anything is stainless steel in the OR, uh, which was very frustrating for the for the operator. Uh, and of course, if if it's going to be a magnetic coupling mechanism, you have a female and a male part, so you have to put something on top of the shaft of your laparoscopy instrument, which was also a burden for the staff. And anyway, so we we had you know all this kind of sophisticated work that went into this coupling mechanism and became apparent almost immediately when, when we did our first cases that the surgeon who was doing the cases was you know pretty unhappy uh, about this thing and that he would have to bear with it for the next 50 procedures you know uh, and and I find something completely different um, and you know that was the case with a few things that we noticed um, in our first in human um, clinical cases and, and and to be frank I mean it, it was the reason why we why we did these cases right I mean that's exactly what we wanted to find out you don't want to find out when you are at the product stage um, but what was a challenge was that you know he had to bear with us that you know we would finish the study and you know, treat 50 patients with an unchanged system because you can only iterate so fast right i mean the regulatory burden is you know basically makes it impossible for you to solve these issues in in a matter of a few months um and so you know we had to explain to him that you know the point was taken and you know it the commercial system would be completely different on these specific topics, but um, you know, for now, that's all we had. And um, yeah, I mean, you make assumptions, and um, and you're not going to get them all right. I mean, there's no question around that, right? It's uh, it's it's a it's I think a field where maybe even more than than others, um, especially in medical devices. I've I've worked on a lot of different products. It, Surgical robotics is a field where until you've put, you know, something into the hands of surgeons, you 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 don't know. And even, you know, you can do labs and you can do a lot of preclinical work. Um, you only find out about a number of things when you're in a real OR doing real cases. And it's a bit scary. You need to make sure you have something that's perfectly safe for that. Um, you will you will find out about things that need to be modified and assumptions that you had completely wrong um, yeah absolutely so when something like that happens how do you bounce back quickly and how do you make sure that you fail fast and and are able to iterate the robot for something like that yeah so we do a lot of uh, labs you know internal labs um where we invite a lot of surgeons um we try to have good representativity we we show them stuff you know on a monthly basis if not more um very early in the process um, and and get feedback and and you know or orient and iterate. Um, 
And, um, and then the other thing is, you know, in your development plan, making sure that you have time to integrate this feedback, uh, you know, into your next iteration, right? We started doing clinical cases, um, in May, um, of last year, May of 2022, and we did not reach design freeze on our commercial system until, you know, a few months after that, if, if not more, almost a year after that, but we had ample time to, you know, correct and incorporate that feedback. Um, and you know, if we had not been in the clinic, we wouldn't have caught everything we caught. So, yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. So bringing it to the, the kind of, uh, conclusion of the podcast now, a couple more questions. And, but let's talk about what the more of the industry. So start off with what do you think the OR of the future looks like? So what are some of the future technologies that we should be looking at and what, what in 10 years time are we going to be seeing from the OR? Okay. Um, you know, that's not the easiest question. Cause I, you know, I don't, I don't pretend I know everything about the technologies out there. Uh, but I think, I think, you know, of course it's going to be, uh, about, um, digitizing the OR, right? The OR is one of the places, um, where, there is um, really a massive amount of data that's collected and very little usage that is done, uh, you know, out of that data. Uh, and and so, you know, being able to um, sense things properly and then, uh, you know, turn that into actionable elements um, is clearly the, the OR of the future, uh, you know, and, and, and you, you can't really rely on surgeons and staff to do that because, I mean, they're already so scarce uh, and so overwhelmed um, that, you know, nobody's going to document things properly until you develop those sensors for them, right? If you look at, um, um, you know, surgery um, reports, I mean, there's there's nothing in a surgical report, right? I mean, there's almost nothing in, in, in what the patient gets after a surgery, right? Um, those notes are completely empty. But there is so much that's happening during this procedure, right? So if if you have the right sensing ability in the OR, whether it's you know the depth cameras, the um, you know sensing what's happening with a robot, how instruments are manipulated, um, you 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 can do a lot of things from from that and infer a lot of uh, stuff, you know, uh, which which can be from hey, you know. We're nearing the end of this procedure. Now is the time to bring your next patient down uh, to, uh, you know, a lot of, um, you know, just quality control um, over the surgery and, and overall improvement. Um, so, you know, I think the OR of the future is definitely going to be an OR where there's a lot more sensing and a lot more quantification and interpretation and analysis and, uh, you know, trying to close that loop with... Um, you know, essentially continuous improvement uh, and, and, you know, better efficiency. Um, and then, you know, I'm hearing a lot about, uh, you know, um, mixed reality uh, technologies and how those are going to be incorporated in the OR. Uh, and, you know, it's not an area where I'm an expert by far. Um, and, you know, mostly because in our initial targets usage and, and procedures, uh, you know, you might not, it. those are not the, procedures where you would need mixed reality the most, right? Because they are kind of sim simple procedures, um, non-cancer based. Uh, so, um, you know, kind of different, different needs there. Uh, but I'm hearing that, you know, for um, things such as implant placement or tumor resection, uh, you know, mixed reality is now at a technology level where it's ready to be incorporated. So, you know, it's not at the right price point, price point, it's not at the right adoption level, but the technology is there. Um, and um, I think it's poised to be, uh, you know, implemented and integrated in, into the OR, um, you know, workflow and armamentarium of tools that, that surgeons and the staff can use. Um, so I, I think this is something that is going to come to fruition, um, you know, again, not for any procedure and indication, but there's a number of, you know, clinical cases where it's going to be um, beneficial. Great stuff. Great stuff. And now more in the surgical robotics market. So 
are there any trends that you're seeing from the surgical robotics market, not necessarily from technology, maybe it's uh, regional, anything at all? Are there any trends in surgical robotics which you're tracking? I think there is a realization that, uh, you know, there is value for, um, you know, simpler approaches, you know, just, um, you know, things that will have a smaller workflow, things that will be uh, in a way less complex, less sophisticated, but will still address a big chunk of the market. Uh, you know, and, you know, of course we, we fall into these, but I think it's something that is being more and more recognized and that, that, that people are going to be um, expanding upon for sure. Okay. Brilliant stuff. Great, great closing point. So thank you very much for being a guest, Anne, and sharing the Moon Surgical story. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Likewise. Bye.